Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy episode 59. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is my very good friend, wonderful, charming, fun guy, Christian Coma, drummer for the band Black Veil Brides. In 2014, Black Veil Brides released their self-titled fourth album, produced by none other than Bob Rock, who had personally reached out to the band's camp about working with them. So needless to say, CeCe and I talk a ton about Bob Rock, as well as his own discovery of Metallica back in the day, his early bands, his introduction to Black Veil Brides, and so much more. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out other shows like No Prize from God and Pop Curse. Make sure to visit SpeakingDestroy.com, which is now a fully fleshed out website. You can also find Speaking Destroy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. The Speak and Destroy theme, which you are about to hear, is by the legendary Scott Mellinger of Zayo. Composed, performed, produced, and mixed specifically for this podcast. So here it is, my conversation with Cece from Blackville Brides. This is Speak and Destroy. talking forever about having you on here since literally when it started and and like you mentioned before we started taping uh every time we run into each other i'm like dude i gotta have you on my metallica podcast and you're like yeah let's do it and then we don't do it yeah finally doing it i guess we can thank quarantine a little bit for for finally making it here one of of the better things that's happened this year but yeah thank you so much for having me on and normally we run into each other at some industry event and you know people us in separate directions and trying to That's say true. Hi. it's usually hectic it's just like hey what's up bud oh i gotta run but metallica podcast yeah you know so it's, <laughs> yeah it's great to finally make it happen man thank you everybody. yeah i'm like 50 50 some episodes deep and i'll tell you i was thinking about this before we jumped on um kind of the serendipity of not having you on until now is i have brought you up in conversation on this podcast so many times really oh thanks, easily man. a dozen times and, and and the main way that you often come up is inevitably in talking about metallica we talk about the black album and inevitably we talk about bob rock and every, and everyone always talks about how perfect and amazing that album sounds and i always tell the story i'm like my friend cc plays drums wow. of blackville brides and the story about um Bob asking you like, so what are, uh, you know, some reference points for like drum, like a typical like producer musician conversation. And you were like, uh, the black album. Like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Drum sounds are pretty good. That'll work. <laughs> exactly. And he, he kind of laughed and I'm like, that sounded pretty good. I'm like, let's, let's start with that with how about the best like drum tone of all time, you know, obviously yeah. arguably, but I'm like, let's, let's start there and just see where we go. But easily one of my favorite, 
most favorite recording experiences with the producer was working with Bob Rock. I mean, he's a Canadian that lives in Maui. I mean, how much more laid back can he get? And so um, it, it was just a wonderful experience working with him and obviously his stories and, and things like that and his expertise and knowledge, you know, of doing it for yeah. so long and creating albums such as the Black Album. And, you know, we, we've had discussions on anywhere from the Black Album to the St. Anger snare tone to <laughs> and all, all kinds of stuff. And so he's just a wonderful person, you know, very inspirational and ju just a buddy. And, you know, he didn't have this arrogance or anything not that I expected that, but, you know, a lot of people with that level of success, they might, you know, kind of talk down to you because uh, Black Bell at that time, obviously, I don't even know what the numbers are for the Black album now. It's one of the, the best selling. Uh, 16 million in the U.S. There you have it. I mean, you know, we, we haven't, you know, passed, surpassed 10 million at, at this point. You know, hopefully <laughs> the years to come we might. But, you know, to, to match that level of success and just to, or to have that level of success and just be so open and, and kind you know it was really refreshing to work with somebody like that yeah we'll get there we're gonna dig into bob rock a bunch but i want to start all the way backwards and this is one of the other reasons why i was excited to do this because we haven't gotten to have too many of these these kind of conversations tell me about how music first got introduced to your life and then at what point you realized okay this isn't just something that i love this is something that i need to participate in i need to be part of this Sure. Uh, well, my earliest memory of music being introduced into my life, my grandfather used to bring an elect, uh, I'm sorry, acoustic guitar over. And I remember I was like three or maybe five. I couldn't be older than five. And he was like trying to get me to play with it. And obviously, I'm, you know, I got these little like chick, uh, sausage fingers at that age. And so I'm like, <laughs> play, and I don't really know. And he was, you know, do all this flamenco stuff. And he, he was, you know, a traveling musician himself and stuff like that. My dad is not, but a lot of my family members are in to music. Some of them do a lot of like Latin jazz type things and sambas. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of one of the only metal guys in my family, but, or rock and metal. But that was my earliest memory. And then, you know, you fast forward a couple of years. I remember being at the age of about like seven or eight like just running around my backyard pretending to be a lead singer and performing on stage and imagining that all the blades of grass were, were fans and people. <laughs> there. And so, yeah. So I've never shared that story publicly because it's embarrassing, but you know, just acting like a jackass in my backyard. My parents are probably laughing inside watching me. And then, um, you know, I remember that fast forward a couple of years, I saw my high school drumline when I was probably about nine. Um, and I remember just feeling the percussive force of, you know, the bass drums and the snares and having, you know, the pageantry of all of the uniforms and, you know, the drill team and cheerleaders and all that stuff. And I was just so blown away that at that point is when I decided that I wanted to play drums and I, I was literally blown away. And so, you know, I did the typical kid thing started with pots and pans or my dad used to eat planters peanuts and so i used to get like the empty cans of planters peanuts and you know turn the wooden spoons backwards and be you know the, the like you know the cliche story there you go see there really sitting right next to me kroger peanuts that's a great snare drum right there uh, <laughs> that's the saint anger snare <laughs> there there you have it yeah uh, oh man oh geez that that's a whole story itself but oh, yeah, we'll get yeah and, and uh, it was just, it, it was great. It was a learning experience. And then, you know, one day my dad bought me a, a snare drum from a pawn shop and I was learning to, back then, I don't even know what it was, all kinds of stuff. Anything from like Offspring to Metallica to, uh, you know, I think I, I was going through a grunge phase at that point. And, you know, 
dealing with all of those bands, just playing one snare drum. And then it kind of just evolved, you know, into drums. And eventually I was playing, you know, in the band in my middle school. And before I was even in high school, my high school recruited me to play oh, in the wow. drum line. So I was in like eighth, seventh grade marching with high school students. And um, I was the only one like not wearing a uniform and all black and playing the snare drum and they taught me the parts and stuff. And I, I felt so awkward, but I don't even know why they did that now. And they would have me like march with them every once in a while. Um, obviously I wouldn't do like the, the halftime show or anything, but I thought it was so cool. I was so nervous and uh, you know, it's, I guess I was just destined to be a drummer. I fell in love with it and just everything about it. And, you know, obviously on the sides, I had bands the whole time. My first band uh, being a punk band that I started in sixth grade with the name Pregnant Nuns. Uh, Pregnant <laughs> Nuns? Yes. That was my first band ever. And so, um, you know, I always was in like punk and metal and rock and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I had that on the side and then, you know, kind of like the schooling and I was going to lessons and I had a brilliant uh, drum instructor by the name of Lynn Smith at a local music school. So I was going to him and yeah, the, the rest is history. It is just, you know, doing the, the struggles of a musician trying to make it and, you know, having your heart broken so many times and being promised the world. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've truly made it if you haven't been let down a thousand times. Right. Like right like yeah that, that's just kind of a badge of honor and a rite of passage at this point of, in the music industry so yeah it's kind of crazy yeah I, I love actually when you mentioned all the way back you know the pageantry and the theatricality combined with that thump of the kick drum because you know little did you know through all of the your journey from there to here how I mean you just described what you do in Blackville Brides Absolutely. And, you know, it's really weird. I don't want to get all like spiritual or anything, but whatever I've asked, like from the universe, whether, um, you know, like they, they have that like power of manifestation and, and things like that. And I'm not like a huge like supporter of, you know, like books, like you got to read the secret or stuff like that. Yeah. But it's really weird because before I got into Blackville Brides, I was in a, a touring metal band before that that was signed. And, you know, we went all over the place and stuff like that. Me and uh, it used to be a singer of a band called Spine Shank. He left Spine Shank. Um, they were nominated for a Grammy. On, on Roadrunner. They were on Roadrunner, yeah. They were nominated, I think, Best Hard Rock Performance or Best Hard Rock 2003 for the Grammys, um, something like that. And uh, him and I, the singer left that band, and him and I started a band. So we were touring, and I remember I gave up on music completely after that. And I remember thinking, it's so crazy, uh, I remember thinking, if I'm ever in a band again, I want it to be, like, really theatrical, like, makeup, and, like, I, and I couldn't have described it more clear like i don't even think blackville brides existed at that point and if it did it was back in cincinnati where andy was originally yeah. from but i couldn't have described it closer there is no band in the history of like of the scene right now that it could have been more you know so this was like 100 i was describing blackville brides without even realizing it and sure enough you know fast forward a few years uh i i get invited into the band and it was just it's just crazy how that whole thing happened and how it worked and you know, the, the fact, like, it's very, very coincidental that I was thinking yeah. of this, imagining this band, you know, that I don't even know if it was created, you know, at the same time, Andy was probably creating it. Maybe it was around. I don't even know. Maybe it was before then, but it ended up being that, you know, and I was. Yeah, it was almost like it was being prepared for you <laughs> in a sense. In, in, a, in a way, yeah. in a sense, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I met two of the guys before and, you know, when I was touring in that previous band, that band was called Silent Civilian. Um, I met Jake, uh, he was in a band and we had a, a mutual producer. And so I remember that producer 
him saying, you guys would be an unstoppable force if we were ever in a band together. And so Jake met Jinx. The three of us were in a band called 80 Proof Riot uh, briefly. And then that kind of fell apart because they both started working with Blackville Brides. And so, you know, about a year later, uh, some some things happened. And so I was asked if I'd be interested in joining. And that's how I'm like, hey, come come into this with us, too. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And remember some of those songs we were working on. We've still got those songs, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And it was crazy because I remember them playing the first album. And it was, I don't think it was, it was either just coming out or it just came out. And they were like, here's the album. And I'm like, oh, that's that riff from, you know, whatever song that was. And that's that. that." And so uh, their songwriting progressed and I I got to hear it. And, you know, like a lot of the drum parts, you know, changed and stuff like this. And even the first time I heard it, I was thinking like, oh, I'd probably do this different. Oh, I'd do this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Not not critiquing it like I'm better what came out, but just, you know, stylistically my own choices as a musician what i would choose to to have done on it and it's just so funny because we just did restitch these wounds and i got to actually record another those. one of those like <laughs> yeah, and got, exactly and i got to record those parts that i thought in my head in that car that i would change you know the first time i heard the album so it's, it's, just, it's funny it's giving me goosebumps because it's like at that time there was no reason for you to think there'd ever be an opportunity to do that not at all and yet, literally 10 years after the fact Little did I know, yeah, little did I know, oh, in 10 years, I'm going to be redoing every single one of these songs you hear today, like front to back, you know, and it's, yeah. it's just, it's, the whole thing is crazy. Sometimes I feel like I'm like, what, what, what is really going on? You know, like I have like, I have deja vu all the time and it's just weird situations like that um, just really blow my mind. You know, it's just super coincidental and ironic at the same point, you know, same time. Yeah, how it all works out serendipitous. Like there's, there, there's some kind of order in the chaos, I like to think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I got to say one of the things that you bring to the band that I appreciate probably the most is you're um, a very physical performer. You know, it's not, ju- it's not just that you're a great drummer, which you are, oh, um, thank you. but, but it's that you, you put your entire body and like, I, like, I feel like you're, I feel like your personality comes across in your performance, if that makes sense. Like, see like, cause you're like, a, you're, al- you're always a positive guy you're super passionate and outgoing. And I feel like watching the band that's coming across from the drummer, which is unusual, you know, cause there's a lot yeah. of different types of drummers, especially in metal. There's super focused kind of uptight. And then there's, you know, your Gene Hoaglands who somehow looks like he's like, you know, taking a nap, but is yeah. doing the most amazing stuff. And I, and I love, I love that performance is so part of, of what you do. Oh, uh, thanks man. That's a huge compliment. Um, I've always, you know, tried to give it my all and I've been doing this for such a long time. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting up there in years and getting older and stuff. And so some of the parts even do uh, re-recording this album that we, we did, you know, 10 years ago, I'm like, oh man, I could really feel my age like doing this <laughs> crazy drum fills. But uh, being in a band with such talented individuals and, you know, such big personalities, it's, it, it wasn't a comp, it just fit from the beginning. And, you know, it's, I think everyone compliments each other well and, you know, everyone has, has their role. And we're one of these very unique bands where everyone has their own personality and so many fans have so many different favorites. Obviously the biggest favorite would always be the lead singer, you know, for most bands, you know? And so, you know, that's debatable as well, but um, everyone has their favorite. And it was my favorite thing when we would do, makeup you know really heavy makeup in our beginning in our early years 
we would see fans wearing every band member's makeup, you know, mine or you know, Andy's or Jake or Jinx's, you know, and it was just a lot of fun and it created this atmosphere and everyone had their favorites. And, and, and to me, you know, you look at bands such as Metallica and, you know, another band that just comes off the top of my head is uh, Motley Crue's another one. Yeah. Kiss, uh, obviously. Kiss, yeah. Kiss, that's another one. And there's, there, honestly, there, there's only a, a handful of bands that have that. You know, and they have that likability for each individual member and, and every member yeah. being able to, to hold their own, you know, and have a strong enough personality or have a strong enough talent or they just perform in a certain manner that people really prefer and, you know, as their favorite and stuff like that. So it's yeah. just... Yeah, and, and without sounding like I'm dissing anybody, there, there are some rock bands, hard rock bands, whatever, that are huge and have sold millions of records and have, have huge singles but there's only one or two people from the band that you would recognize if they passed you on the sidewalk, you know, where, where there, there's, for the most part, it's kind of interchangeable faceless people. And then there's like that, the singer, and then there's that one guitar player or there's the whoever, you know, and yeah, there are very few bands, I think that fit that archetype of like a Guns N' Roses, a Motley, a Kiss, sure. uh, where, yeah, there's these like distinct personalities, I, like, I, you know, all the members and like what they're different thing is absolutely i forget sometimes uh because i go into like normal guy mode and then like rock star mode and it's not that i get like conceited and ego and i'm an asshole or anything like that but i you know i know when to turn it on and off when i'm on stage you know i i just be like yeah you know you, you got to perform you got to have some type of um arrogance you know for lack of a better term uh on the confidence. stage confidence that day. <laughs> yeah, i guess yeah confidence uh but I, I think it's got to come across and you got to make people believe in you. You know, you got to make the fans believe in you and stuff like that. And so me being the drummer, I forget sometimes that we are one of those types of bands and I'll be in target and I'll buy in toilet paper and there'll be somebody staring at me. And in my head, I'm like, what the hell are you staring at? And I'm just kind of like, okay. And like, can I get a picture? And then in my head, I'm like, Oh yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. That, that whole thing. And so it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, when that happens and oh, yeah you used to seeing me like animal from the muppets yeah <laughs> i'm just a dude buying toilet paper right now but yeah i have like toilet paper in one hand and a pedialyte in the other i'm like i swear <laughs> this isn't what it looks like i don't have a crazy case of diarrhea but you know this just to hydrate or the butt there you go but. um yeah and i think uh you know to that point and it's funny how it does naturally seg into metallica Lars is one of those performers where like, you know, he's always he's standing up and he's like, he does the thing he does with his hands and pointing at people and spitting water. And, you know, sometimes they would change instruments like back in the day and uh, just a very, cause a, a drummer is thought of as, you know, you're behind everybody else. You're, you're the only one sitting down. And I think there are drummers like you, like Tommy Lee, like Lars that take like without, stealing the show or being like a spotlight hog like that really step up and are like no i'm i'm not just like back here in the shadows like i'm part of this like we're yeah. we're all going for it thanks man that's an incredible you know honor to hear you say that about me and, and a very nice compliment um there there are those drummers and i i never wanted to uh just to sit back and and get by with the minimum you know uh my drums are an expression of, of me and different periods of my life and everything I've been through. I've been playing drums, you know, over 20 years now. And it's, it, it's, it's an expression and, and I just owe it to 
everybody else to just give it my all, you know, to be in the position I'm in now, you know, and have so many shows under my belt and try to get to be able to play drums for a living all over the world. You know, I feel very fortunate. And for me to give like a half ass, obviously there's times when you're sick on the, on the road and you can't really give it a hundred percent. You're trying, but you know, you're feeling the best and you're, you're exhausted and things like that. But overall, like I, I try to give it my best every single show, you know, I never try to just phone it in, so to speak. And so it's, um, it, it's, I, I owe it to, you know, to my drum teacher, I owe it to my family and I owe it to my fans and, and, you know, and my brothers in Blackville Brides and stuff sharing the stage, you know, if I'm just giving it 50% effort, they're all go, going ham, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't really know what, what to say, you know, like there, there's always someone that could, you know, younger do it better. And so I, I think that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of what, what keeps the fire up under my ass and seeing all these, these kids on YouTube, man, yeah. crushing it. And, and uh, there's, there's so many, people that are talented now and so to be in my position i'm definitely feel fortunate you know because there's a million people that would give everything to be one that right absolutely uh and, and you mentioned um kids and kids on youtube and stuff like that and what would your advice be to a young kid because i remember you know when i was ninth tenth grade trying to do bands with my friends and and all that and uh yeah and, and by the way pregnant nuns is awesome my first band, which wasn't in sixth grade, I wish, was in ninth grade, and we were called Rejected Fuckups. There you go. We were, yeah, we were RFU because we were really into like DRI and COC and all, yeah, all, all the acronym bands. We wanted the like three, you know, the three letters acronym. But um, but I remember, but drummers were always the hardest to find because anybody theoretically can be a singer in like a punk band or a metal band. Uh, in a sense, in, in, at that level, you know, and a lot of kids could convince their parents maybe to get them a cheap guitar and a little practice amp. But to convince your parents to let you have drums, first of all, <laughs> it's like, it's huge. It's a lot of stuff. It's got to be set up and torn down every time. You have yeah. to have space somewhere in the house or somewhere that you can play. And then you also have to like be in the neighborhood or, you know, I mean, there's so many things that have to line up for you to be able to do that. Um, what's your advice? to kids when they have that that first conversation with their parents where they're like mom dad whatever i want to i want to be a drummer i want to get drums like how do you convince because it just it seems like it seems like the hardest of instruments to it, it definitely convince. is i actually was doing another podcast and we had that that same topic and it was uh he was he asked me he was like you must just like, do you love pain? Why, why did you choose drums? And I just laughed, I'm like, what an odd question. But it's true, there's so much gear and you're setting up and you know, you don't, you can't play. And th there's actually some cons to, to playing drums. I mean, like right now, you know, unfortunately I'm not in a position in this house. I don't think my neighbors would really appreciate it if I would, uh, you know, you know, play drums at this, you know, at this hour or whatever. And so I don't know when you're going to film this or, or send it out, but maybe we might have to cut that. But, you know, if I was to play at night, I can't just go crazy with some double bass and just do like crazy, you know, like yeah. all this stuff. But uh, to give the, the kids advice, I think feel out your parents and see how, how it's being received. And if it's a hard no, then maybe you can go, well, they have electronic drum sets, you know, and I can yeah. wear headphones. And so you gotta, you gotta shoot for, for the stars, you know, and so, uh, you, you, yeah. you gotta, you gotta get like Neil Pert drum kit. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. We're talking about Lars, get that double bass drum, 1980s. Like, dude, you got, you gotta get the, 
shoot for the stars, get that big, loud, obnoxious acoustic kit. Uh, because honestly, there's there's no feeling that can't be replicated by performing on an electronic kit. However, if you need to kind of tiptoe into it and you know put your toes in the water and feel it out first, maybe get an electronic kit because um, you you will be able to play later in the day and you could re you know rehearse at, at all times and you just wear headphones and it's a lot the noise levels and the decibels are way down and so I think that might be um, and then a, you can get your skills and everything going and. Sure, and then you're gonna you're gonna know notice that, that when you play an acoustic kit and electronic kit, you'll you know especially when you're performing in a band, you'll have to hit harder, and so you'll you'll develop some kind of you know more muscular um, strength, I guess you know when you're when you're playing an acoustic kit rather than an electronic kit, and so yeah, I, any anything, and like you say, drummers were hard to find, and in my particular town when I was in high school, there was like two or three good drummers and we were all in a bunch of bands so <laughs> right. we the three of us it was like we had all of them covered it was just like a network of bands and you know we all knew who we who we were and that's so you know, funny it, had to be so true in a lot of scenes because yeah in my the first band that i was ever in that actually managed to play a single show we had a fill-in drummer at our one and only show that was in like three other bands and um and, I, and actually, my band put on the show, and we told this other band, like, hey, you guys can play if we can borrow your drummer. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's amazing. system of bartering, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah always, so by and always in a million bands. Yeah. One would quit one, and then just one of the other two guys would join, like, <laughs> oh, that spot. It was just like this never-ending, like, circle. Uh, yeah, and it, until everyone got out of high school and kind of went their merry way. And so it's just interesting uh, how that worked out in my hometown. You know? Yeah. So what, you mentioned Metallica being part of the picture for you pretty early on. Do you remember what the first record song video, like what were your, your first experience was? There was, there were so many different periods with Metallica. So, you know, like ride the lightning. Uh, was it ride the lightning? I think it was ride the lightning um, stuck out for me, but for me personally, I don't know why this was, but uh, Metallica was synonymous with Tower Records like releases. And so anytime an album would come out back in that era, I'm, I'm probably speaking more of the Black Album era now, but yeah. I remember seeing on MTV when they actually yes. did the stuff midnight, about, like, yeah. At midnight, there would be people around, there would yeah. be a frenzy, and it would literally get, I'm almost getting goosebumps right now, as, you know, a, a tween, I guess, at that, that time. I would get this excitement about music, um, you know, and just the fact of holding a physical copy. And I think that having chains such as Tower Records, you know, kind of shut down and closed, there, there's, maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but there, there's a, a, a loss, you know. Now, instead of you just click on iTunes, and you're like, oh, got, got the song, going to the store and seeing all of the other artists and, and how they have the displays and stuff, and you get like the physical copy. I used to read it front to back and read, the liner notes and, and the thank you lists and what gear they use and, and everything and look at the artwork. Um, I mean, there is that, you know, to some degree now when people buy like the VIP packages, you know, we, I know Blackville Brides, we release vinyl albums and stuff like that. And a lot of fans get like the hand signed version and things like that. But lining up, there was just such an excitement and frenzy. And I feel like that's, that was lost over the years. And so yeah. for Metallica, for some reason that just sticks out. They were that band. It was like them and Guns N' Roses, but more so Metallica. And, you know, and then when they're discussing the album sales and how they're just flying off the charts and they're setting records and then 
meanwhile, in their news story on MTV, they'd be cut having cutaways to like live shows and it's het with like the handlebars, you know, playing in front of this massive festival. I would get so excited. And it was times like that, that I wanted to choose music for my life, like for my career and my life. Like, that's it. That That's what I want. And hearing the guitars, um, you know, just just do like the, the melodies and harmonies to, together and everything. And, you know, even Lars's kick tone and his kick drum just booming and huge. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is it. And, you know, even from their, their earlier records and, you know, like Master of Puppets, I remember hearing that song and being like, what is this? You know? like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. What, what's going on, dude? What this is, is happening. Yeah, this is awesome. And then, you know, fast forward, it's late at night and they have this really dark video. It's, you know, uh, they have one going on and, you know, seeing like the their music video for one and all, all these, just all these inner Sandman and that, just that whole era and different eras. Now I'm, I'm getting mixed up. I'm getting all excited. I'm reliving my youth here. And I'm like, ah, God! Do. This, is what this, is, this is what this show's for. <laughs> like, I, I, want, I want to relive it again. And, um, you know, I just only hope that, things that Blackville Brides have done for their fans gave kids or any fans of any age that same feeling that I got watching those. Yeah. You know, looking at it going like, I want to do that. Yeah. Hearing, you know, un Unforgiven, like just watching that music video so dark and like dirty. I'm just like, oh my God, this is sick. Like, and I just love it. And I just fell in love with it. And, you know, just all of it, you know, uh, the, the records before the Black album, you know, there, there was just an intensity that that's what got me into into that and and you know it wasn't for me it wasn't quite as you know I, I wasn't I guess I was more Metallica than Slayer at that point uh but it wasn't as heavy as Slayer I, I you know I was probably listening to you know the society where I was like oh it's like a little too much but uh, <laughs> Metallica for me was was the perfect blend that I could get away with it and not you know, have my parents think that I need therapy or anything like that. Yeah. They, I but, mean, uh, they have in a lot of eras been that gateway band that can bridge the gap between the more commercial mainstream stuff and the sure, sure. underground stuff. Cause they always had a foot in both from the very beginning. I, absolutely. And, you know, and then getting back to like to the black album, I think that's what I remember talking to Bob Rock about that and him specifically saying that was an album that, it, it was so successful because like lawyers, doctors, surgeons, you know, people that are into music, they were now purchasing album. Yeah. You know, that wasn't normally what, what would happen. It just appealed to so many different demographics as far as people purchasing this album. They had so many singles that could resonate with people. And that was, you know, one of the, the reasons why it was so successful and, and speaking to him personally about it. It's just such, such an interesting topic. And, the, you know, a lot of people, he, him saying that he got so much shit because people would say, you ruined Metallica. And he was like, you know, it, it sold, I don't know what he said at that time. It, it sold this, this many, you know, albums and like, I'm still doing it right. Even when we were recording, we bought, we sent the runner to buy a black album. So we did <laughs> A and B, the tones, you know, on guitars and stuff like that. And so it's it just the whole process, again, going like full circle in the yeah. serendipity of everything it, it's just very interesting and coincidental and um having all of that come come together um yeah that i think like during that period like the whole record sales and things for some reason i just associate I know what you mean and there's that the, with the tower records thing too because now I, I worked in record stores 
uh, as a teenager and then into my early 20s and in, in like independent record stores in Indianapolis. And I, yeah, so I got to, you know, make some of those displays and, and, and we did probably my most vivid memory of a midnight sale was the, the night that Pearl Jam Versus came out and the first Snoop Dogg album, they both came out the same night. Oh, wow. And Pearl Jam was already huge off of 10 and Snoop was huge from The Chronic. Even yeah. though he didn't have his own album out yet, that was out and that was huge. So those were two really big records coming on the same night, if I'm not mistaken. And, 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 I, and I just, yeah, there was just something about, you know, even in, in the Greenwood Park Mall on the south side of Indianapolis, you know, a hundred people lined up on the sidewalk at 11.30 p.m. waiting for our little store to open so they could yeah. run in and buy the new Pearl Jam, you know? Like, it, it, yeah, I remember seeing all that footage of the Black Album and when I moved to Southern California almost 20 years ago, you know, that seeing the tower on sunset was like as much of a landmark to me as, you know, oh, that's where Pulp Fiction shot. That's the house from A Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever, you know, like seeing stuff. Tower on Sunset was just like, a, that was just like a thing, you know, like yeah. And uh, going to see, uh, you know, Steel Panther back when they were metal shop. Yeah. Um, at the Viper Room because it was across because it was the Viper Room and like River Phoenix and whatever, but also because it was across the street from Tower Records. There was just always something about like I felt like I was in the MTV I grew up watching. And it also helped that I was working literally at MTV at the time. But yeah, when you talk about that full circle moment for me to be like living in LA, working as a reporter at MTV, going to the Viper Room and seeing you know, Gary Sharon and Michael Anthony get up and do Van Halen songs with those guys or, or whatever on any given night, you know, seeing Scott Weiland sitting in the booth or, and then looking across the street and seeing Tower, like, there's just something about all the, that iconography, those landmarks, those locations where, yeah, you really felt like you're stepping into something that as a kid you only witnessed through a screen, you know, from afar. Yeah, there was, there was a, an excitement that, you know, I know, I know Sunset's kind of being gentrified right now and they have a lot of like buildings and there's even billboards that said like, don't let um, Manhattan would happen or something, you know, and they're trying to prevent it from becoming like the next New York and stuff like that. And so there are a lot of landmarks. I, don't, I haven't been up there. I live, uh, I don't know, approximately like 30 miles from there. So I haven't been on Sunset. I don't even know what the tower, if it's still there. Or what, yeah, what I haven't it. been, I haven't been up that way in a long time either. It's just sad, you know, like the House of Blues got torn down and yeah. I heard that there was a period that the Viper Room was going to get torn down, but now I think they're just going to build around it or, or something. They're building a hotel. I, I, I don't know how much. Yeah, and, it, and it's, been a, it's been years now, I guess, too, since the Key Club changed into One Oak. That changed into One Oak, so that became a whole, wholly, uh, completely different vibe. I mean, uh, Whiskey and Roxy are still there, but uh, yeah, it, it's just it's, it's crazy to just see, you know, the, the Sunset Strip changing so much, and I just hope they don't get rid of all of you know, eventually get rid of all of the, the things that I cherished and appreciated as a kid, you know, like, like you're saying yeah. the landmarks and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that experience of going into, you know, I, I always think about the movie, uh, the John Cusack, Jack Black movie, High Fidelity, where, where you could go into record stores and there would be knowledgeable clerks who might be snobby or, but you would have like, there'd be like the metal guy and there's the indie rock person. And then there's the goth chick and there's like, yeah, people had their little areas of expertise and, and you could go in. I mean, I remember um, 
one of my earliest like record store experiences. I, I, I was, I had the benefit. I have an older brother who's five years older than me and, and turned me on to a lot of cool music. But I remember I was in like sixth or seventh grade, went to the local record store. And one of the guys who worked there was the drummer in this band, Sloppy Seconds, who were one of the only like punk bands from Indiana to ever like get out of Indiana in terms of popularity and, and stuff like yeah. that in the scene. And there was even a, a minute in the nineties where when Green Day and everything, all those bands were blowing up in the mainstream, uh, Sloppy Seconds signed to Nitro. And there was like a, a feeling in town of like, like, oh, they're on the singer from the Offsprings label. Like, yeah. they, didn't, they never quite got to that level, but they were like a known. So anyway, so it was always crazy even just to go in that record store and be like, there's Steve Sloppy, like the drummer, you know, like he looked like one of the Ramones and just seemed like the coolest guy. And I have this vivid memory of going in and asking him, um, hey man, do you guys have any Hanoi Rocks? And it was just like a band I knew because of my brother. Yeah. And he goes, finally, somebody in here with some taste. Yeah. And like, jumps <laughs> over the counter, like super cool, you know, like Damone yeah. and Fast Times, cool. Like, and like walks me over and shows me the records. And then I remember feeling like totally defeated because I didn't have money. I wasn't going to buy anything. <laughs> He's like showing me all the Hanoi Rocks records. And I'm like, cool. And just like, all right, cool. And he just kind of goes back behind the counter. But yeah, I mean, there's, for all of the benefits, I mean, of course, it's amazing to have the world history of music at your fingertips, in your pocket, literally. But there's definitely like a huge thing that we've lost about those moments of going in and, and or, or you've only got 10 bucks and you're like, okay, I, I you know, I heard my, my friend played me Metallica, which one of these tapes do I buy? Like, is, is this one better? Is that one better? And someone's there like talking to you like, well, kid, like depends. Do you like this or that? You know? Yeah. It it's was gone. You know? it, was, it was like the precursor to guitar center for me. And so, <laughs> yeah. you, know, so you know, instead of being like, Oh, which crash symbol sounds better, which snare drum I should buy, or, you know, which guitar I should get for what reason they'd be like, Oh yeah. I, I'd always miss that where they would, you know, you'd have a knowledgeable clerk saying like oh have you ever heard this band you really like this or, or yeah. like oh what song do you, is this song i heard this on the radio remember when we used to like record on the cassette tapes because like your favorite song came on you're like oh hit record yeah, just, yeah. Like, rock or whatever uh and yeah which which album is that on and so I'd, I'd be looking at every album and looking at the track listing on the back and just having a knowledgeable clerk be like oh yeah well it's on this album but if you like this band have you ever heard this band and Somebody yeah. that actually enjoyed music and was an enthusiast and knowledgeable all at the same time. I mean, that, that was a really cool experience in itself to be, for me, a kid. But like, much like you, I, had a, I have a sister that's four years older than me. And so a lot of the, the bands that I would hear, you know, she would get me into. You know, I remember the first yeah. time I played, you know, Alice in Chains and, and stuff like that. And so I would be like, oh, what is that? You know, come in a room. Who is that? And so I remember it, it, when, yeah, when Appetite for Destruction came out, I was in high school and it was, you know, blowing up. I, I might have been in middle school even. Um, but I remember my brother going like, oh, you like, you like this Guns N' Roses band? I'm like, yeah, you know, and him showing me a picture of Axl Rose and Izzy Stradlin, two guys from Indiana. And he's like, he's like, yeah, these guys are cool, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, check this out. And then he shows me Michael Monroe and Andy McCoy from Hanoi Rocks looking exactly the same, like, like my, you know, Annie McCoy's got like the Izzy Stradlin hat. And like, I mean, you know, it was just like, he's like, yeah, this is, this is where they got it from. Like having those, those people in your life that could kind of show you like the building blocks. You yeah, know, sure. Yeah. It, it's such like. a, 
And that's one of my favorite things about Metallica that comes up on this podcast a lot is the way that they have opened the door for so much stuff that they love. I mean, not, not only younger bands and, you know, whether it's a Gojira or the sword or, or machine head is even, you know, a little bit younger than them and bands that they take on tour, but, but more so all the stuff that they've covered, the t-shirts they wear, even, in the modern era, the battle vest that Hetfield has with all the patches on it. Like, you know, I've talked about this a lot on here before, but you know, the Misfits, Sam Hain, Danzig are are some of the most important things to me. And my discovery of all of those bands was because of Metallica was because of all of those guys wearing Sam Hain shirts, Misfits shirts. Like that's how I discovered that. And then it became such a big part of my life. Um, It's just, you know, incredible when bands do that, you know, or then when you think about Garage Inc. being like multiple times platinum and it's like, okay, because of that record, some guys from Diamond Head and some guys from Merciful Fate and, you know, are getting like publishing and like yeah, buying a car and <laughs> whatever, you know, paying the mortgage. Like, it's, like they're literally paying it back. And I think that's just incredible. Yeah, I, I love that. I think there's um, definitely something to be said about about stuff like that. And there's nothing more that I like is hearing an artist that I look up to and respect and admire speak about another artist or, or they wear their shirts, you know, and it's like, they'll end up, you know, when I was younger in a hit parade or, or something and they're on, you know, it's a live shot and they're wearing like another band's shirt. And I'm like, who, who is that? Yeah. Oh, they must be cool. You know, they must be cool. Cause that, that guy's wearing it or whatever. Yep. And, and so there's nothing more I love than that. You know, like I was saying, like the clerk and just finding out even like friends, if some friends will, tell you like oh have you heard this i heard this you know have you heard this and just i don't know i've really missed those days and i mean i'm getting all nostalgic thinking about like my childhood and stuff and listening to to these things and having friends with older siblings that you know they could drive and so we would go like oh let's go for a drive and then i'd hear like a cool new song like who is this who is this and i just can't wait to get home you know to to try to find out more about this and look through my magazines. Like, it's, are they in yeah. this one? I think I saw something. I think I saw this name somewhere. Like, let me find out more about them. And then going to whatever store the next day and trying to find them, you know, like a magazine with pictures of them and stuff. Yeah, like that, dude, so. the t-shirts and the magazines and the thanks list were another big one too. Like, you know, reading the thanks list to master puppets and being like, who's Exodus? Yeah. They must be cool. They're friends with Metallica. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would love stuff like that. Or, you know, I, I can't remember, um, their liner notes and stuff like that on, on, on albums. I mean, my memory shot, but I would love to see like where they recorded it. Like, yeah. Think, you know, who they think and, Oh, they must be good friends. And you know, like you're saying, like other, other bands and other members of bands, like, oh, where did they record the black album? Oh, Jim Henson, the old Jim Henson, uh, and M studios. And uh, yeah. <laughs> where's Blackville recording their fourth album? Well, we went there specifically for that reason. We, we yeah. got on the same board and like the same places. And we yeah. tried to, um, I don't want to say emulate, but, kind of recreate it because we thought that that would be our black album you know that well this sure. is probably going to be our black album we have the guy that did the black album we're going to all the same places it's even self-titled self-titled <laughs> yeah, yeah we even moved uh, we went we did some work at the warehouse i know he brought us because i think motley was at that one but um and warehouse studios in vancouver in vancouver yeah yeah I, th- the, I think some of the black album was there too if i'm not mistaken i think maybe he yeah. mixed it there yeah, I I think it was mixed at um, Henson Studios because that's where. We oh, okay, I'm gonna have that yeah. flipped around. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it was Motley or Metallica. I can't really remember, but we lived in Vancouver, Canada, for a month, and we were just you know 
we were doing it, going for it. And we were all invested, you know, in, and just, we got uprooted, you know, I, I know Andy was married at that time. I don't think anyone else was, but we, we all just got up there, you know, and so it's, it's yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. I went, I, I, I came by the studio once, um, with Blasco and, uh, to Henson studios, A&M, whatever. And, Andy came by for a little, I'm trying to remember even who was there. Cause I'm not all, all of you weren't there, but yeah, it was like, you know, my friend's band. I think I was doing a cover story on you guys and you know, Blasco was probably my oldest friend in LA He's person. I one of the, one of the handful of people I've known the longest since I've been out here. And uh, you know, so it was all cool. It's like a, just, you know, another day of the week in a sense, but for me as a Metallica being my favorite band, it was all about like, I'm sitting like, two seats away from Bob Rock, like, just hanging out. You know, I remember at one point Andy sitting next to me, he's talking to me about something. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I'm just not, not starstruck so much. It's just like, it's like history, you know? Like, you feel like you're in this, like, historical. Totally, yeah, especially at that studio. I ran into so many random people there, but, you know, I don't, I don't even want to, like, name drop who I ran into. Just, like, opening the door, like, physically running into them, be like, oh, my bad. And like, there's just people were you coming. Can, and you can name drop. We do that here. Uh, <laughs> so when we were in that room mixing our record with Bob Rock, where uh, Metallica did the mixing for the the Black album, you know what they did track at the Warehouse Studio that, uh, where we. we I thought recorded. so, but I wasn't. I'm not. I wasn't. I remember tired. now. I'm remembering like watching that whole thing where Lars had his the the kit, the big kit, and they were like, yeah, back. okay, was, that's there. All right. a, and we did our our uh, group vocals in that same room and stuff like that. So. Uh, anyway, yeah, there was across the studio from us was uh, Bieber, Justin Bieber. I wow. never ran to him, but no I, yeah, I heard that. I remember one time they were setting up the studio and they had like a ping pong table, all these lights. And I'm like, "Whoa, you guys having a party?" He's like, "No, Bieber's coming in tomorrow." I was like, "Oh, that's what all those like teenage girls are doing out there." Uh, <laughs> all they were like, they, we had, "There's a security gate, and there was always kids outside, like 40 of them." And I'm like, "What are these guys doing here?" There's, and how do they know? Where do they find? Yeah, them? I don't know. It's crazy. I, yeah, and so I, I never saw him. I heard a rumor, I don't know if it was true, that he spilt some, uh, like, whiskey or some kind of alcohol on the on the mixing board, and it was like $450,000. He was just like, oh, my. I don't know if that's true or not. Don't quote me on it. But He's like, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's worth it. Worth it. Uh, that, I, I, I think I ran and I said hi to Lana Del Rey one time when I was walking out. And right. then uh, Billy Bob Thornton, the actor – was actor and musician actor and musician i don't know why i had to say it with all the actor he was doing an album with dwight yoakam at the same time and so it was, like, it was like a country thing and i remember i briefly chatted to him one of the, one of the days and you know just kind of a simple like oh hi how are you doing what are you guys doing what, what's your band all about like that, yeah that's a dude he was probably thinking like whoa that's bob rock and i'm thinking like well <laughs> you know it's just like the whole, that whole period was just kind of insane. And like, like yeah. you say, it's not being starstruck. I remember the first time we had a sit down with him. And we're That's, just- that was going to be my next question. Cause I, I know about this only from Andy and doing Andy's book. I've heard the story from him about meeting Bob at swingers. Um, but the story from Andy is more about how Matt Skiba was there by himself. And Andy was focused on Matt Skiba the whole time. He should be paying attention to this big meeting with Bob Rock. Yeah. Uh, so I want to hear from you uh someone not focused on Matt Skiba the whole time so because because Bob had reached out to Black Veil that's yes. I think an important thing for people listening to understand if they don't 
know Blackville that well or don't know the story that well. He, he actually contacted you guys and was like, I heard this band and I want to work with you. He did. And when that news was shared with all of us, I'm like, what? They were like, yeah, Bob Rock. Like, I'm just like, oh, cool. And I'm like trying not to get excited, but in my head, I'm like, holy shit, this is like big. And, you know, it's um, the band is, is doing great. You know, our success levels are, are, you know, we're going up and up and up and our trajectory is just, uh, you know, to the sky. And so it was just kind of reassuring to have somebody of that stature reach out to us. Like, wow, we're on his radar. He wants to work with us. It wasn't like an ego thing, like, but just the no, fact it, that it, it's it, validation that you're, you're on the right track. You're doing something right. Absolutely. And so, you know, we had to sit down and he was great you know, to chat with and really easy going. And we're all having, you know, like breakfast and, and um, just talking and seeing like what we would want to do, filling each other out if it would work. And yeah, it was just kind of like, Oh, I'll let you know. And then, yeah, I guess we got the call or Blasco got the call that, yeah, he was interested in working with us. And, um, you know, set up some dates and he was, he was at that time, such a different producer than we've ever worked with. So we would go, we were playing at a, like a rehearsal studio called Mates in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I've been in there. It's on a street called Cleon and we've been there and we've heard like Slash rehearsing in the other room. I mean, when we were there with Bob Rock, uh, Paul Stanley walked in on us and stuff like that and was like, Hey, I heard you guys were in here. We're like, well, that's a dude from Kiss. Like, (laughs) <laughs> it's just so crazy that whole period of life like i guess i was just not not even trying to think about it because if i think about it i wouldn't even believe it but yeah bob rock and, would and he told me that that paul stanley was like hey i didn't recognize you guys without your makeup yeah yeah and totally, <laughs> and bob and paul had this like weird like kind of like I, there was a little bit of tension in the room not gonna lie because i don't think bob ever did an album with right and i think that they were he was kind of like I was like, like, oh, you're doing these guys. Never yeah, did us. Yeah, he was kind of bitter about it. And he, he was super nice, super kind. Uh, yeah. But it was just, there was, I could tell there was like a little bit of tension. And we were just kind of like, whoa, that's like Paul Stanley. And like, the, the, their banter was just like, oh, wow. Like, it was so crazy to be just a part of that in there. But um, getting back to Bob, how he would just kind of conduct us in, in the songwriting process. And he was so blown away by, uh, you know, Jake and Jinx's work together and how they always joke that they share one brain. So one would be like having a riff on like here and then they would just trade off the guitar and then the other one would perfectly complement the first riff. Um, and so Bob's like, I don't know how you guys do it. Like, I've never seen this. And then even when I got behind the drums, he was like, I don't know how you do it. And so um, I think there was just um, a mutual level of respect and, you know, ad- admiration if I want to go that far. But uh, we, we've even taught Bob about like certain technological advances, such as like the Kemper profiling unit for guitars. And so he was like, what is this thing? And, you know, he's so old school that he wasn't really feeling it. And so for everyone that doesn't know, it's this guitar thing that's called a Kemper. And um, it's just kind of like a digital gu- guitar uh, emulator, I guess you can say. So it could kind of sound like anything else. And so it could sound like so instead of bringing in a million amps and trying every amp and cab combination to get it one specific tone for one part, True. right? It's more like a... True. Well, we oh, did. We, we, brought, we brought, when we were with Bob, we brought tons of gear in to, to and kind of tested this with this. How would this head sound with this cab? How would this sound with this? How would this sound with this? And we came up with the best tone. And then you just push a button and it copies like the electronic frequencies, how it 
it projects the sound and it just kind of emulates it. And then it steals, steals, you know, for lack of a better phrase, steals the soul of all of it. And then it's just now a digital uh, profile. And so you can adjust it in, in the unit. So we explained this all to Bob and he was kind of like, at first I want to say skeptical. And then by the end, he bought two of them. <laughs> funny enough, like later on, we found out that he was like working on a song with Motley Crue or something. And they posted a video and there was a Kemper like in there. And we're like, ah! Oh, <laughs> and so it was just really, and uh, that was just interesting process to go over with him, how they got such big tones and, and what they did. And, you know, him saying how much money they spent on tape and, you know, just the actual tape, the recording tape and, you know, everything that we were doing was on Pro Tools, which is digital and tape is obviously analog. And things were not the same and it, we were trying to utilize the technology of our abilities. However, trying to use his know-how and knowledge about how to get such warm and solid tones. And so we were trying to combine, you know, the two together to, to make it a very- and, and he's a performance guy too, right? Like he's really making sure- He really is. Oh, I, want, I want you to play this right and good and- he was. It, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, just, you know, fi fi fix it. We'll and fix post. it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like, it was so, so much so that he would have me at, at certain times. Um, I remember like I, I rented some snare drums and drums and for our particular uh, our ballad on the album called Goodbye Agony, I got the snare that's big red that was all the same exact snare drum from November Rain that Guns N' Roses used. So the song that's on November Rain, I used that same snare drum on our, our slower ballad. And I had like a ride from Event Sevenfold. I think that was on like Unholy Confessions album. It was, like, I, it was just crazy. But as far as playing, he wanted me to actually play everything like, you know, and, and flawless, which I appreciate instead of just being like, oh, yeah, just fix that and make it sound great. And it's like yeah. absolutely perfect. He wanted the soul in there. And so there was a particular time when I'd be rushing my snare hits and he would, I remember him saying like, you're going to look like an idiot, but at, every time I want you to raise your hand and your drumstick as high as you can, because you're early. He's like, you're just too early. He's like telling you, you're going to feel like an idiot, but it's going to work. And so I remember just doing like this and like, I'm playing the song and I have my hand up like this and I was laughing. And then like, he was like, it, it's working. So, you know, we're going to do a couple more takes. And it was just those little things that were so, Old school, however, it, I don't know if it was more of a, of a psyche, you know, thing that he, he just knew or if it was actually the mechanics of, you know, me, I'm going to be. Or, or some combination of all. Yeah. All of it. It was just little things like that, that his personality would really come through when he was tracking us. And especially. Like and that's, the, that's the magic that no matter how talented they are, some, you know, younger dude who's done everything on a laptop just isn't gonna like those are the th that those are the experiences that they haven't had you know yeah, and teach an old dog new tricks as far as like getting bob into the kempers and stuff like that but that sort of thing that he's doing with you from a performance perspective that's that's only going to come from the accumulation of all those experiences of recording all those great drummers for sure. so many years you know yeah, and he, i mean he would take a year to do an album you know and so yeah like, how, how long, how perfect do the drums need to be if you're taking that long to do an album? Obviously, Lars would have his own, you know. Methodology. Lars, Lars is Lars. And so, you know, he, he has its own. And even 
when we were mixing, he, I remember him saying like, Lars was so particular that he'd be like, oh, that kick drum, like one dB up. Like he would go like individual notes. Um, hit by hit. Hit, hit by hit. And I mean, that's, that's why it sounds so great though. I yeah. mean, to be so meticulous and have this ear for something like oh, that. And he was just like, oh, thank God you guys aren't like that. Which by the end of the process, we did kind of become like that. We're like, let's do like up 2.5 dBs. And he's just like, oh, you guys. Like, as soon as <laughs> you know, and so we have to, never told you that. <laughs> yeah, we did turn into that. But I mean, the whole process working with him, um, I would love to work with him again. It, it was just such a fun process. And, you know, let alone the history that that guy has and stuff, it's just his stories about so many influential moments in you know rock music history that he's been a part of and him sharing it with us and him being like, oh, you guys, he has his laptop. You guys want to see when I was riding motorcycles cross country with Bon Jovi and his wife? Like, oh, there's a home video. And we're just like, what? And just like, there's so many, and he, and he wasn't doing it in a manner. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a flashy, showy person at all. Just like. Not, not the least bit. It, it was just like, that's, that's him. And he's just like, yeah. And he's so that's down life. He's yeah, he that story just like we tell stories about our friends and things. Yeah, like so down to earth. Just the stories about you know, like the, working with the Metallica guys and you know uh, how Lars was at the studio and stuff like that. It's just it's it's funny. I, I I can't share, you know, every story that Bob has told us about you know his his various artists he's worked out or worked with throughout his career but it's just like some of them i'm just like oh my god you can't believe he's just, he i wish he would write a book i mean i really <laughs> i don't know if he has ever in his life but if he, i don't think he has if he has and um i mean i guess it would kind of be if, just he, if he needs a co-writer <laughs> yeah respectful to to just spill the beans on everyone else's you know stories and the behind the scenes but that would definitely 100 percent be a book that i would buy and read cover to cover because <laughs> His stories and the way he tells it, he's got such a, a great sense of humor and he's just a solid dude, man. God, I, I just, this is like, am I just confessing my love for Bob Rock during this podcast? I mean, like, we, knew, we, we knew we were going to get there. It, was, that was, that was, it, it was, must be the, those long blonde locks of his. Uh, no, but he <laughs> was a great, great producer to work with. And I have nothing but fantastic things to say about him. Yeah, that rules. Um, and I also like that he, and I appreciate this about producers in general, you know, I, I, one of my best friends, Dave Peters, he said to me once, never trust somebody in the music business who didn't try to start a band first. And I have found that to be a truism. And, I, and, I like, and that's something I appreciate about Bob Rock and obviously John Feldman and, and Zeus, the producer I work with. Like, you know, these are people that love music the way we do. And that the initial inclination was like, I got to be in a band. And then life works out however life works out. And you end up involved in whatever other area of the music business it might be but that initial passion that initial fire i find that i relate to people who have that a hundred times more than than you know and it's not to judge anybody who didn't come come into it that way but i would imagine as a musician that's got to be part of that connection that you have with bob it's like oh before before he was bob rock the producer he was a guy in a band that was on a major label trying yeah. to make it and didn't quite make it but had a couple things go and sure and relate to you in that way he would yeah he would take the bass and play the bass like oh i don't know if you guys knew i'm a bass player we were like what for real and he was like yeah let me show you and he was even like poking fun at himself uh he showed us one of his music videos and he was like why am i making this like buck tooth because i'm doing this and we were like what are you doing he's like because dude my whole career that's always bugged me why did i do that in the video 
and he's like playing bass. He's a great, he's a great, you know, musician. And yeah. you know, he's performed on some of the albums that we've listened to, you know, sure. behind the scenes. And so um, he's a great musician and a dude, you know, working with the John Feldman, there's the two of them, Bob Rock versus Feldman, you know, are, are such different people, such different producers. Um, you get a different product, you know? And yeah. so I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, each, each one has their strengths. And so uh, I appreciate both of them. I think we've made wonderful records with, with each one of those, those guys. Uh, yeah. And, and like you said, they were both musicians, you know, to begin with uh, Feldman with Goldfinger. I can't recall Bob Rock's band's name, but. Uh, I don't remember what it was called either. I just I, remember the music video in the bathtub. I forget. Look it up it's, later. It's going to, it's going to hit me right before I fall asleep. I'm like, ah, that's what it is. Yeah. Like four <laughs> in the morning, I'm going to jump out of my sleep. But it, there is something to say about, uh, producers that have been through it and you know the struggles of being a musician and trying to achieve it achieve success and stuff like that i'm gonna i'm gonna take the benefit of of quarantine and look it up rock and hide yeah that's it and it's hide like jekyll and hide yeah amazing um i gotta i gotta talk about i gotta do some kind of rock and hide episode at some point i actually uh blasco um, made an email intro for me with Bob probably like two years ago when I invited him on the podcast, but I never heard back, but you know, he's a busy guy. I'll try, I'll try again at some point. Yeah. He, uh, I don't know who he's been working with. I haven't really kept up with him. I think I texted him. I was in Hawaii once. Uh, <laughs> You're like, I'm in your stomping grounds. <laughs> yeah. I was supposed to do, I know that they all hang out. It's like, uh, Alice Cooper, Bob Rock, uh, Steven Tyler, they do like the the New Year's or is it Christmas and New Year's in Maui? And wow. it's like a bunch of like Jim Carrey was there one year, like maybe it's Bill Maher. I don't know. There's like a bunch of like, yeah, I know Bill Maher goes there all the time. Yeah. There's like a bunch of celebrities that go and they kind of hang out. And one year I was gonna, I was invited to go through like, uh, I was seeing someone, uh, her, her best friend was Alice Cooper's daughter. And so, oh, wow. so they were like, Oh, maybe you guys could come, you know, to, to Maui like during Christmas. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> when waiting for it i didn't i didn't get to i didn't get to go i don't know if i had family stuff or band stuff come up but I, it, the timing just didn't work out i was so bummed i was like ah i should be in hawaii right now but <laughs> it's just really cool to see all of them get together and, and you know they like play music and have a good time and you know like i have a buddy that plays drums uh glenn sobel he also plays for alice cooper and um hollywood vampires and stuff like that so i think the last time i saw videos from that trip one of those trips like he was playing drums and like, I don't know if Johnny Depp was, there. It's, just, it's, it's like, it's like a bunch of celebrities that all get together and they just have a good time. It's just like chilling. And it's like no BS, you know, no, I don't know, just no hoity toity crap. And like, everyone's just, well, chilling. I mean, because a lot of all the names you mentioned, those are all cool down to earth celebrities. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess yeah. they're kind of hand selected. Like who's not going to be dramatic. In, yeah. In, we're not talking about like the private plane to Ibiza or whatever. Like we're talking about, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, well, hanging out with Bill Maher and Bob Rock and Alice Cooper would just be cool and chill. And yeah, I, I I haven't met Bill Maher, but I've heard great things about it. And th yeah, they're all laid back. Alice Cooper is another one of my favorite people I've ever met in the in the industry. He's he's always been very kind to Black Belt brides and has kind of been. Yeah, uh, he's taken us under his wing and you know. Really Dude, the introduction at the Golden Gods that he gave was just like. Yeah, he, yeah. He was like he 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 may as well have come out with an actual Alice Cooper seal of approval and stamped it on your record true yeah the first time i ever met him uh was at the kerrang awards in london 
uh, I don't know if it was our first Karang Awards and he was in the middle of an interview and the first time I actually had like a, a face-to-face conversation with him and he ended the interview and he goes like this to me and I was like oh shit you're like, am I in trouble? Because <laughs> well, I, I was hammered at that time, and I was like, oh, what happened? Like, I'm a, did I say something? I'm like, oh, Alice Cooper, this guy's going to chew me out. And he was just like, he goes like to, to me, he's like, there's a camera this close to his face, and he's like this, and I'm just like, oh, dude, what did I do? And so anyway, um, ends the interview, and he talks to me. He's just the kindest person. And they, that whole family, um, you know, just the, the – I don't, I don't know. They're, they're just so kind and, and their morals are just all in the right place. And, and, you know, uh, just that, that whole family, I, I have nothing but great things to say about them. And so it, yeah, it's very refreshing to see somebody of that level. Also, you know, I was talking about Bob Rock, how much I respect him and for him to be so down to earth. I mean, Alice Cooper was definitely another one of those people. Amazing. Uh, yeah, he seems like just the best. I've gotten over the years, the opportunity to become uh, pretty tight with David Ellison and, um, you know, the, the two Daves from Megadeth just speak yeah. the world. I've never met Alice Cooper, but they speak the world of Alice. And I know he's been like a oh, kind of father figure mentor to the to the Daves and Megadeth over the years. Yeah. Somebody who had lived the hard life that they were then living. That One of the first people to take them aside and be like, you guys need to calm down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Under sure. control. Yeah. Like, he, just seem, he just seems like he's been that person for a lot of people, which is. Oh, so yeah. Weird. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, those great people. So last couple of things, because I could keep you all night, um, but to land the plane a little bit. Whenever I have drummers on, I've had Mike Portnoy, Igor Cavalera, um, a good, good amount of drummers, I think, have done, the, uh, have done Speak and Destroy. We always talk about, I had the drummer from Taking Back Sunday on recently. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm, of course, drawing a blank when it matters, but 50, 50 some episodes now. But uh, we always talk about Lars is drumming and the uh-huh. thing that comes up the most is that for the bad rap that he gets in certain circles unanimously every drummer that's been on the show it's like that band would not sound the way it does with someone else playing drums there's just 100%. something about his feel his choices his tempos that are just it's there's a lot of metal bands you can listen to and it could be any great drummer playing those parts but you hear a metallica song and you're like i know who that is it's it, it, true you know it, lars does get a bad rap and i was thinking about it today uh, before we did this podcast uh and i was gonna say that same exact thing um there's another guy that comes to mind um and I, it, not stylistically or anything like that but when you would listen to rage against the machine you know and they would do like mm. evil hire and stuff like that brad wilk he is not the most technical drummer. No. So solid that Rage would be a completely different band with him. That being said, from that era when I was getting into Metallica, you know, you had the Vinnie Pauls, you had the Dave Lombardos and, and stuff like that. And each one was their own entity and they had their own style and stuff like that. And they made, you know, Pantera be what it was, Metallica be what it was, Slayer be what it was. Yeah, but- and Lombardo's another one too. I mean, you could argue that Paul Bostoff, who's amazing, is maybe a more technically skilled drummer but Lombardo is the sound of Slayer. True. And, and it's oh, the same. Yeah. And so Lars, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't mean this with any disrespect or anything. Lars was never, uh, te- technically never one of my, my drummers that I achieved to be like, uh, there were certain aspects from him that I admired and I wanted to be and, you know, things like that. But as far as playing, he was never 
like my number one or anything like that. Uh, that doesn't make me any better. I don't mean that with any disrespect. No, I know exactly what you mean. However, that being said, he's the perfect fit for Metallica. I mean, you know, they. I know that they did. I forget why he wasn't able to, but Joy Jordison filled in to perform with. Yeah, Lars was was sick and missed like a, a festival show. Yeah, I think originally the idea, because Lombardo was there, was to have Lombardo do it, and he did like a few songs. And you know, I don't think Metallica knew the Slipknot camp as well and didn't realize that Joey like knew the songs. Yeah, they know Lombardo and they know he's good, but Joey was waiting in the wings. And I think originally they were planning on switching back and forth. But once Joey got behind the kit, they were like, let's just have him stay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, doing like almost the whole set. I guess, I guess he'll, he'll be good enough. Uh, yeah, you one. know, Joey <laughs> Lars, I, I don't know. But uh, the point being is, you know, they, it must have felt completely different. You know, I wasn't there to witness it in person, but I've seen videos and stuff yeah, like I've that. Yeah, I've seen videos but also. Just the feeling of, you know, it, it's different. And so... I, I think there's a magic that comes across it when you listen to music and everyone's soul is, is part of it. And, you know, that comes from part of the re recording process. Instead of recording it digitally and just being like, oh, quantize or beat detective and everything's perfectly lined up as a drum. Yeah. You know, there, there's micro milliseconds that, you know, it's before, after the note, and that's what creates the feeling of it. And I think Lars was absolutely perfect. And some of his parts were, I mean, were, were there more technically capable drummers that could have filled those shoes and, you know, play, played a little bit crazier parts. Absolutely. However, it wouldn't have been Metallica. And so, you know, I don't want, want anyone that's listening to this podcast to, to say that I slighted him or anything like that. I mean, obviously he's a wonderful guy. I, I, he was leaps and bounds beyond like the whole Napster thing. And I remember when that came out, I was just like, dude, what is this guy doing? And here I am, however many years later, like, ah, that guy had it right. I, I well, was... yeah, uh, uh, Jamie from Hatebreed, who's, who's been on the show, he, he makes a shirt that says Lars was right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you see it, you know what it means. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely know what it means. And he, I'm sure that completely changed his life. And he became such a hated guy. And I remember yeah. there were cartoons made of him, making fun of him for going after Napster. And he took it all. And, 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 they've, and they've said in the years since that there were other big A-list artists that they would run into socially who'd be like, love everything you're doing, Lars. I love what you're saying. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep making those points. And they were like, cool. You guys want to like make these points with us? And they're all like, no. Yeah, no. We'll, <laughs> let, we'll let you be the hated one. But, you know, we yeah. support you, but it's from the shadow, you know, behind shadow. It's, it's crazy. That's one guy I've never met from the industry that I'd love to actually meet one day is Lars. Uh, yeah, me to, neither. Just, just to not even fanboy and like get a photo or something, you know, like, I don't know if he have a dinner or something, just like, you know, short conversation and just kind of pick his brain on, on certain things. And, you know, one of the things that I'd like to talk about these people that still have a career after so many years is how they stayed so motivated. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe the times in 2020, that's kind of getting to me or, or something like that. But yeah somebody i can't imagine like playing these like metal parts that he wrote you know in his 20s when he's in his 50s now and 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 still crushing it and you know like i i tried to have this conversation with travis barker one day but we there wasn't enough time again we, it was one of those times where someone's pulling me this way uh it was at a christmas party actually at john feldman's house and i was like dude i wrote to him on instagram or something we got we got to have a chat one day he was like absolutely and it was just it never happened but these guys and these drummers that have this um, and I think Lars would definitely be that guy to speak to because he's been through the ringer. Um, 
you know, he's put so many things out there publicly when they had uh, some kind of monster DVD. Yeah. And everyone's like kind of making fun of them for that. And obviously like the St. Anger snare tone and like, he's had so many ups and downs and the Napster thing. Um, I'm talking about all the bad stuff, but I mean, obviously he's had uh, tremendous amounts of accolades. changed music. They're the biggest metal band of all time. Yeah, exactly. well, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know all that. That's why Yeah, you already know you already know all the good stuff. <laughs> but how he still continues to do it and how he just rose above everything, you know? Like yeah. everybody was like he he became that I don't know, that pinnacle like people would just always make fun of him and he just was always Lars and he just, you know, and, and he always seems he's he always seems to have a compass pointed in a certain direction. And that's probably the thing I respect about the guy the most is that he's fearlessly charging into you know they did some velvet underground songs with lou reed at the rock hall and then somehow it became what if we made an album together like he just he's just gonna go no regrets no looking back try it some things are gonna work some things aren't but i love that unapologetic um and i love that you know the yin and yang of him and hetfield because you and i don't mean this in a political sense but in like a personality sense and a, in a creative sense, you have one guy who's pretty conservative and one guy who's pretty liberal. And I, and I think there's this yin and yang of that creative force between the two of them mm-hmm. where each of them kind of balances out the others. And it creates, the, they get the best out of each other, you know, in that push and pull and whatever that dynamic is. And yeah, I mean, you couldn't have that. I mean, without Lars worldly cosmopolitan, you know, introduction of the new wave of British heavy metal and all this stuff that he brings over from Denmark and following Motorhead around as a kid and spreading that, you know, around the world. And I also, someone who was on the podcast before, and I I hope people listening can forgive me for not remembering who exactly, I think it was Alex Skolnick from Testament. Someone mentioned how undoubtedly Lars's innate Danishness and Europeanness having the old Danish flag on his kit, how much that's contributed in, in many ways to Metallica's worldwide success. Because there's, um, you know, watching that band, one of the guys from Warbringer was, was talking about this too. You, you, can, you can look at the band kind of from different parts of the world and see different ethnicities and cultures represented within the four guys in Metallica right now. You know, sure. and, just, and just how that, you know the band is just so massive internationally and how that that probably plays a role yeah that i never even thought about that aspect and i was referring to that then playing those huge festivals you know in front of over a hundred thousand people where it's just a sea of people yeah and i never even thought about that aspect that it could have been because of his danish roots and stuff like that um that maybe that's why like those european festivals were so big i mean yeah that definitely could have attributed to it they see a little bit of themselves throughout my whole career i know that he is kind of the guy that uh i don't want to say polarizing but when when i meet another drummer on tour or something his name is probably the name that gets brought up the most of whether or not he was someone's favorite drummer or not yeah um he's like the subject of debate among musicians exactly exactly uh you know i i never hated him i i, I thought he was perfect for the band um i, I it's, it's just different and having these conversations throughout the years you know i've been touring for i think i started touring in like 2004 2005 and so throughout the years just meeting so many different drummers on the road and, and speaking about this guy and having i mean even still 
um, you, you see his influence on drummers, you know, with, with yeah. the white fit and the black heads, you know, and it's just like, oh, that's, that's the Tommy, yeah. you know, it's like that. I know where you got that, that one from. And so he was such an influential person and in, um, having the discussion, you know, with, with you and, and other drummers and why some drummers were like, he was my favorite drummer of all time. And, you know, I, I always appreciate everyone's like input on him and how yeah and that, that's one of the things that's so demonstrative of the band's overall impact is that everybody in any corner of the metal community the hard rock community whether whether they love metallica hate metallica like one era don't like another era whatever their opinion is everyone has an opinion and there's Absolutely. a few bands you can say that about Whereas with Metallica, and everyone always knows what they're up to. Like, if they have a new record out, whether you, you stopped following the band six records ago, you know there's a new record out. Yeah. Some kind of vibe on it and some kind of opinion. Yeah, there, there's... That says there, so much, I think. There, there is. And, you know, that when I was saying I'd like to have a conversation, it's, it's, that's what I'd like to get at is how they still stay so relevant after so many years and how, you yeah. know, how they're just still motivated and how they just don't... I don't even think they need to work anymore. I'm sure they're doing just fine, you know, with residuals and royalties and stuff like that. But it, it's just very interesting how you can keep alive a passion for that long and, and still crush it and stay relevant and not, you know, kind of. Yeah. Away. And it's, to your point, actually, I, I thought of this earlier when you when you said you'd love to pick, you know, pick Lars's brain about longevity. They just did Howard Stern over this past week as we're recording this episode. And Howard Stern actually asked them, uh, they, he put up a picture of the Rolling Stones and he was like, do you think you guys will make it to that Stones? You know, when you get that age, are you still going to be out there doing this? And, and, and this comes up sometimes now because we haven't, you know, Paul McCartney's still out there doing it. Um, Sabbath was out there doing it not that long ago. Ozzy's still doing it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but we haven't had anyone going as hard playing inten as intense that style of music no one from those generation of bands has gotten into their 70s yet so we don't know what a metallica in their 70s looks like or sounds like on stage and it was really refreshing to hear them say right now um because they were talking about the symphony thing and they were talking about how when they did it the first time in 99 you know, it's the symphony and it's all these like kind of, you know, old fart, sophisticated musicians. Yeah. Lars was saying how when they did it this time, they were older than most of the musicians. Oh, really? Because yeah. <laughs> now they're in their 50s and there's like violin players who are like 30, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And how a lot of the people in, in the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra in 2020, 2019, grew up listening to Metallica. Whereas the first time around, it's like, these, you know, two different worlds, you know, and then sure. the second yeah. time, like, you know, they're meeting the clarinet person or whatever, and the clarinet player, she's like, I, I loved, you know, Inner Sandman or whatever, like, um, and, and so, yeah, so anyway, so Lars's answer was, was very optimistic, and he was like, you know, we might be doing, going on stage and doing 10 all within my hands acoustic rather than 10 batteries, he's like, but yeah, he's like, I think, you know, as long as the necks and the shoulders and the knees and the throats hold yeah. up like we'll be going for it and it's going to be interesting to see as we all get older like growing up with a band like that like they'll be kind of the first to cross the rubicon in terms of it, it how will you be. play that style of music at that age the first, 
Yeah, the first time I saw Metallica, uh, we, we were playing a festival called Download in, um, in Donington in England. And uh, we, were, we were main stage and we played just a few bands in front of Metallica. And I got to watch them like in the pit. And I remember being so, maybe it was because I was so close to the stage, but I don't think so. They just brought it, like even Lars and just all of them, um, the intensity and the energy, they were still bringing it. It wasn't like they were hanging on, they were still just owning it. And it's a huge stage. There was, I think, 90,000 people watching that year. And uh, for me, that was a huge pinnacle moment in my career, in my life, to know that like we were just on the same stage, you know, less than two hours ago and now Metallica is playing that same stage and I'm sitting here in front of 90,000, there's 90,000 people right here and I'm here like I could do this and I'm like the only people that are allowed here are security and like maybe a couple photographers and for me I, that was one of those moments of my life where I'm just like uh, and that was my first time seeing them live. First so, time? Oh amazing. First time seeing them live. I've seen, you know, since the creation of YouTube, I mean, I had VHSs back in the day. I had all that stuff. You know, this is before DVDs and all that stuff. I remember watching them on VHS and just being like, oh, my God, this is like, like I was explaining earlier in this podcast. This is what I want to do with my life. And so I don't – I remember being bummed that I, I never got to see them because I think I was, like, too young to go to the shows. And then I, I kind of was just doing my own thing. And then I, like, fell off and stuff like that. And for to get the lineup for Download Fest and knowing that I'm going to be able to watch the Metallica at this point in my life, I wouldn't have had it any other way because I think oh yeah and and yeah to be able to watch them as someone on the bill, I mean that's what I was on main stage a few bands away, but even if you were playing across the field, two in the afternoon the day before, you know like you're on the you're on the poster <laughs> like that's yeah and I remember I was with a couple bandmates and I was just like this is so sick and just playing you know they their set list was just a span of i don't even know 20 years and, just, and it was just all these different periods of my life that i'd associate you know moments of my life with these songs yeah. on stage and just having this this moment and i'm just like oh man it was just almost overwhelming and it was a, a really fun experience and so yeah that was that was my first time i'm pretty sure that's the only time i've seen them live and uh I, I seriously would somehow that ended up being the only time forever. <laughs> like that's a I good saw them. Did they perform at the, the Golden Gods one year? They did. Or, yeah. Um, oh, it was I the saw... year I was I was managing Dillinger at the time, and Dillinger played the same. Golden I was there. Was there that year? I did. I don't really consider that like a, a show. I mean, it's a performance. yeah. It's a really but small it place. It's weird. It's only a few songs. Yeah, it wasn't like a full like like I bought a ticket to go see that. I mean, it was like yeah. part of a, you know, award show. So I only played like a couple songs and stuff like that, but I saw them perform that time as well. But um, yeah, like when I got to see the full show, like right here, it's like, Oh my God, that's right there. Like, Oh dude. Like it was so cool. It was just amazing. Yeah, man. Um, have you had an opportunity to, you said you hadn't met Lars before. I haven't either. Um, have you met any of the other guys? In any I program? have not met. I think I may have met Robert briefly once. Uh, but I haven't met any any of the other guys. No, um, I, I yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, I know that when we were working with Bob, Bob kind of talked to them about us and you know a asked their opinion. And um, I'll plead the fifth on what they said. <laughs> uh, it wasn't wasn't bad. Uh, he probably was, seen you but not heard you. That would be my guess. Yeah, it was it wasn't bad. I mean, the fact that they knew of the band and I mean, we, Lars keeps up on stuff, especially and, and, it, and it was Lars. It was it was Lars that I'm referring to that, and, yeah. and and especially Kerrang. He loves Kerrang. Kerrang's been a big supporter of his. He's got like that old nostalgia for Kerrang. 
and Blackville's been on the cover of Kerrang like a gazillion times. So yeah, we've been, there's no way that he wouldn't know. <laughs> we're, yeah, we were, we were, I don't even, I can't even tell you how many times Kerrang. <laughs> yeah. You know, they've, they've had photographers follow us on tour when we do, you know, UK and European tours. And, yeah. They're very supportive of you guys. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. I'm very appreciative for, for actually all of the, the outlets, you know, all of them, yeah. the fact that we're still being covered, you know, just even doing a 10 year album re-release and stuff like that, a re-record um, the fact that that's even, you know, made the, the headlines. Like I, I'm very appreciative to, you know, to the, the all yeah. presses, the, you know, rock sounds, the Kerrangs, everything like that. So alternative press drummer of the year. <laughs> Christian yeah, I, That's it. I, I think you were the one I spoke to immediately. after. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Yeah. I may, and, uh, I may have mentioned it to you at some point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for everything you've done for me. I mean, that, that was, I remember when that first got brought up that I was nominated, uh, for me, I was absolutely blown away. I remember you, we, you and I were talking about it and you were like, well, you know, and we had our discussion and the stuff like that. But I, I, I mean, I can't thank you enough what you've done for me. I mean, that oh, was dude. a dream through. And I remember accepting that award for drummer of the year. Like I had this whole list of people to thank and I was just so nervous that I just didn't even thank any of the people. So I ended up putting it on my Instagram, like, sorry, everybody, here's a picture of the list wrong here. And it was like, buddy, you know, like, the legal team, the management team, all my, my friends. And like, I was so nervous that I didn't even, when I was on stage, thank my girlfriend at the time. And <laughs> who was, was there? Like, yeah, who was there? Who was sitting right next to me? I, I was like, I didn't even thank her. I was just so nervous. But um, yeah, thank you for everything you've done for me. And like, I, I definitely really appreciate you and the, just your insight you've had throughout the years and, you know, help, helping the band. And I know we've done talks at MI together and stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah. man, which uh, when, if and when life returns to some sort of normalcy, I'd love to do that again. I'd love to do one even with just you. That's like I a think drum that would be, focused. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I, I had such a great time uh, doing that. You know, um, we, you guys, we you guys were my first band for that actually. Really? Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. The we, only the only um, the only downside for Blackville in that scenario was, and this is like some inside baseball. Hopefully, people are interested listening to this, but. So for people who don't know, um, I host a series at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood uh, called the MI Conversation Series. And I, the best way to describe it is inside the actor's studio for bands. We have a little theater there on campus that's really nice. I think it seats 500. And I'll interview a band on stage for about an hour and then do like 30 minutes of audience Q&A. Blackville was the first band. And the only downside for Blackville was that as someone who is like i guess in a sense more experienced with live shows and ticketing and things like that i was the lone voice in our little team telling mi hey because the the events are free with rsvp all you got to do is rsvp and as long as you rsvp you can show up and come in if you're in the general public or a student and it seats 500 so MI was adamant about turning off the RSVPs at 500. And I was the lone voice going, here's the thing, you guys, when you have a free show, everybody RSVPs because they see it on social media, whatever. They're like, oh, free, I'll go to that. Yeah. And then when the day rolls around, the percentage of all those people that thought two months ago they were going to go yeah. free, they didn't buy a ticket. They're not obligated in that sense. You know, so I, I was like, if, and this is just kind of a rule that people that the concert promoters know, right? Like if it's free and it's RSVP and you've got space for 500 people, you can let that ride up to like 900. 
and the in the the worst case scenario that you might have 50 people outside that couldn't get in you'll figure it out you know like but more likely what's going to happen is what happened to blackville where 500 people rsvp'd and then we ended up doing it to a half empty room yeah and the only thing the only thing that was good for me from that was me then being able to go to mi and go see and every event after that we run we run the rsvp up to eight or nine hundred well we were the guinea pigs for that but we were the guinea pigs for that and andy's andy still gives me crap about it um that, well, we'll do that. We'll do another one. We'll, we'll run yeah, it but it was, and also it was filmed, and you can. I mean, it didn't. It didn't look empty, but um. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was funny. I thought. I thought it was good. I, I enjoyed that. That was a good time. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and definitely would love to have you back. Well, dude, I'm glad we finally made this happen. Yeah, I mean, what was it? Almost three years in the making. Yeah, high five, I mean, literally. High, high five to you. Uh, Zoom high yeah, five. Thank you so much for for having me on. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, man. You've always been. Like I said, such a, such a great person in the industry, and you know your your Thanks, insight man. to everything, and um, you know, thank you for everything you've done for me personally. And well, for- and, and people know that I'm a supporter of Blackville Brides. I'm uh, it, it's funny. Like we're we're talking about Lars. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Blackville over the years, I feel like it's subsided. Um, and you guys have even just from the staying power have changed a lot of minds. But obviously, Blackville was a polarizing band at one point, and people had opinions about Blackville. And uh, I've never been shy when I'm around metal elitists and snobs and or people that dismiss the band on a picture or whatever. I'm, I've never been shy to be like, and it's one thing, because there's a lot of bands that aren't very good that have nice people in them. And sometimes it's like, yeah, but those guys are cool. I've always been like, those guys are cool and their band is good. <laughs> like, oh, thank you, man. Yeah. Listen to this song. Listen, I'll tell you which songs you need to hear. I'll tell you, you know what I mean? Watch this video. Like I'm, I'm, I make no apologies and have no shame in, in saying yeah, that because yeah. Blackville is a great rock and roll band. And as thank somebody you. who loves the misfits and a lot, a lot of things that there's elements of in Blackville, because one thing that I think gets mischaracterized is um, sometimes people will lump Blackville into that like LA eighties hair metal thing. Yeah. And to me, it's like, no, this is like more in the realm of, of goth subculture kind of dark punk new wave like i i've always seen that side of the band as much more prominent and much more tangible yeah and, um, and, and as the years go by that side of the band only comes out more and yeah i think it's giving people awesome. uh, uh, a problem because they don't know how to classify us to a particular genre and so yeah. that, that's been one of the biggest problems because people are like that's not metal well i don't know if we really consider ourselves a metal band you know like we're kind of we just are what we are and we are we are what we want to be we we don't yeah. we don't want to fit a mold and you got to be this and you got to do the same record i mean you know like i i don't know we we have a lot of different elements in the music we're creating right now for our next album and so elements we've never done before some that we have done before and it's like you know you, if you go to a metal band and then a guy pulls out a violin and starts playing it on stage you, you don't <laughs> really know what to do you know and so like when yeah. you go to our shows it's such a melting pot of just you know races ethnicities ages it, styles and genres everything it's like you you go you, you're kind of like what the hell is going on here there's people wearing makeup everyone's in all black uh, what what are they doing this guy's playing a violin this guy's like doing windmills like he's in you know death clock what the hell like what is happening like, and it's i think it's just like you know a very controlled shit show <laughs> that i would call it it's just like 
it, it's a circus, we, a fun circus. It, it's a circus, and it, it's fun. And um, you know, with our early years, us being so polarizing, we never kind of tried to conform to anyone's standards, and we just we yeah. stuck our neck out on the line. And it's the story like, of so many bands. I mean, dude, I love Avenged Sevenfold, and I can tell you, as somebody who's who's a bit older than you, that it was the exact same thing with them. They're posers. They all have silly nicknames. Yeah, the guitar players shred, but are they even really playing? It's probably tracks. You know, I mean, it was like I I heard it all about Avenged when they were on the way up, and yeah. that band just became one of the great hard rock bands ever. And yes, you can watch it and you can go, here's what they borrow from Guns N' Roses. Here's what they borrow from Metallica. Here's what they. But that's also everything because you can uh -huh. take you can strip Metallica all the way back to Diamond Head, Motorhead. GBH, Gold Merciful Fate, you know, it's like, that's, that's every great band, you know, I mean, I, I remember seeing, uh, or not seeing, actually, it was an interview I actually did, doing an interview with Billy Ballo from him, um, and him saying, you know what, man, like, my band is just typo negative plus U2 and some Black Sabbath, <laughs> you know, and it's like, there you go. Yeah, he took those things and put them together and made his own thing out of it, and that's the trick, like, there's bands that are just straight up clones of other bands. And then there's bands that are like some of that, some of that, some of that, put it in the blender, put my own thing in it. And that, that's, dude, that's movies. That's every great art. Yeah. I think that's what Blackfold is. And it, we, you know, we all take from our influences and it's funny you say that about a Ben Sevenfold. Uh, Cause when we toured with them, Zachy said the same exact thing you said, like mm. to me, Jake and Jinx. And wow. he goes, he goes, dude, we got the same shit. You know, I, I was wearing nail polish and makeup and, you know, we used to get the same thing. And I remember him going like, you guys are going to be playing in arenas in no time. Don't worry. We, we went through the same thing. You guys are, you know, this was, what did we tour with him? 2011, I think. It was, it was yeah, it's been a while. But um, it was, he said this almost verbatim what you just said. Wow. And that was like one of the actual, you know, Zachy Vengeance from the Vince Enfolds, the one saying that. And so it's, it's very funny that you mentioned that. But yeah, we have elements of every individually, we have elements of our own influences and stuff. And I think that's what makes Black Belt Black Belt, you know. Yeah, well, anybody that doesn't love you loves you personally. I remember the very first time I met you was at the Exhibit A Gallery. Um, I don't remember what the event was necessarily. It must have been around the time you guys did the coffin video because I think a bunch of the props were still there. Yeah. Um, but just, and I, and I was so new to getting to know the band that um, I wasn't even sure. I knew you were in the band, but I wasn't sure which instrument. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, sure. And I remember talking to you. And then when you walked away, I was just like, that was the nicest, most like pleasant dude, you know, like just, oh, thanks, man. That's great. And just having that, that first impression. And it's always, anytime I, I would see you, it's always like, so yeah, anybody who doesn't love you personally is nobody I will care to know. So yeah. Oh, yeah, My well, pleasure to have you on this. That means the world to me, man. You've always been very kind, and you know, like I said, you, you've been very insightful and, and helpful, and just just everything. And so, uh, thank you for everything. Thanks for finally being able to do this. I mean, man, yeah. now next time I see you, I'm just getting a high five. Like, we did, we did it, we did yeah. it. And in my defense, although the podcast has been around for a few years, and I know this because I hear it from people online, not very good about always getting the episodes out consistently. So. It's not oh, as though I've done one every week without you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm not the I least. Bit, I'm not the least bit offended or anything. Like that. <laughs> I, I knew it was going to come, you know, whenever it's right. And what better time than a, a global? And pandemic. like I said, it's perfect too because I bring you up all the time because because Bob Rock always comes up, and then I always talk about that conversation we had where 
Yeah, where he was like, "What kind of drum tones do you? What are you kind of going for?" And you were like, yeah. "Black album, like, yeah, uh, cool." Black album. <laughs> you ever heard that? <laughs> you, yeah, you, you may or may not be familiar with the Black Album, right? Uh, awesome, yeah. brother. Well, good to virtually cool. see you. Yeah, man, always a pleasure. Stay safe, happy, and healthy, man. And uh, I hope I get to see you in person whenever it's safe and this whole thing calms down. And uh, definitely yeah, shoot shit, man. Definitely, brother. Yeah.